turn to the book of James this morning, and uh, if you've been following with us through our series going through the Bible in a year, don't freak out thinking we're just wrapping it up all of a sudden. Uh, We've also been doing a series through the book of James, and so we are wrapping that series up uh, this morning. So we find ourselves in the book of James, chapter 13 to 20. Book of James, it's after Hebrews, big book. Towards the end of your Bible there, right after that, you find James, uh, the smaller book. I'm going to um, read it aloud, and if you'll follow with me, let's look through it together. James 5, 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James has been um, a straight shooter, if nothing else. Um, If you've been following through the book of James with us or just are familiar with it, uh, James is packed. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. It is just command after command. James, I would imagine, and and one day we'll see him uh, with the Lord in glory. He's a straight shooter. (laughs) If your shirt's untucked, he'd be the first one to tell you. So James uh, gives us this um, book that's telling us, and our series was entitled, Faith Changes Everything. Faith changes everything, and James is very, very practical. So I thought I'd start just by sharing something. It will make sense shortly, but uh, I used to be terrified of water. I'm not sure if any of you knew that. I used to have nightmares of water. I can still remember some of those. Super petrified. And so um, my parents, who are very sensitive people, would try to help. My dad would hold me over the end of the dock. you know, convincing me that this was the best way to beat my fear. Uh, my mom signed me up for swimming lessons in a lake. Half-hour drive through gravel roads in Saskatchewan to get there. By the time I got there, I was nauseous from the roads, let alone my fear. There was a time where we moved, and then we're in a small town with a pool. Like, amazing. The town had a pool. I didn't know this existed. And um, so I was pretty excited for that, but terrified. But I found myself in a class for swimming lessons again with seven-year-olds, and I was 12, and it was like, all right, no more of this. <laughs> and I don't know how it happened, but I beat, maybe pride, I beat my fear of water. Uh, eventually, um, and just to say this, it, it, it absolutely changed everything. I ended up becoming um, a lifeguard. I was part of a swim club, uh, loved water, water skiing, wakeboarding, um, spending time at the lake with friends, everything uh, changed on one level. On one level, everything changed, and on another, it didn't. It can't 
You see, there's a, a fundamental problem that overcoming a fear of water can never change. There is a fundamental problem that no diet or gym or genes or pills or shampoo or relationship or even tragic experience that you've gone through can change. There's, there's maybe within those, maybe some comfort, um, some help for a time from, from the boredom, from the loneliness, from the exhaustion, the sickness, the hopelessness, the anger, the confusion, the anxiety, the loss, and the fears. There's, there's maybe some help in that for a time, but you have to hear me this morning that those are just symptoms of the greater problem. You know, we can very easily treat God like shampoo and look to him just to treat our symptoms, but you have to hear this this morning. Those are symptoms of a greater problem, and the greater problem is this. The problem is uh, I am a sinner. The problem is we are sinners. We're born into sin. We're condemned by a holy God, and, and rightly so, for our sin and our rebellion. And the punishment for sin is, God has told us, it's hell. It's not only an eternity apart from him, but it's an eternity paying for our sins by being tormented in hell. We are absolutely, it gets worse, we are absolutely helpless to defend ourselves. We have no defense. God has said that. You have no defense. And we have no ability within ourselves even to seek after God and to know him. Now, if you are hearing what I'm saying, it should make you very uncomfortable. There are many things that the world says that we have problems with that are our problem. This is a message that's very rarely spoken because it hits directly to our greatest problem, our pride. And if you heard what I just said, then you, you have to acknowledge and admit that we need everything to change. We, we need literally everything to change and no how and no thing and no one can change what I just explained to you. We're absolutely helpless and nothing can change it. And you have to, you have to camp there for even a moment by God's grace to be able to take that truth and feel the weight of that or else you'll turn God into something else. This is the state of every man and every woman. We are helpless, and this is why we praise God, because there is only one God, and there is only one who can save, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is one, and there is, to be certain, there is only one who changes everything. There is only one Jesus, the Son of God. There is only one. There is only one Holy One of God. There's only one who is fully God and fully man. There is only one and not another who lived righteous. Only one who is capable to take the punishment for all sin. There's only one that could bear that. There's only one who's the perfect substitute for sinners. There's only one with the authority to declare us forgiven and declare us righteous. There's only one. And your shampoo can't do this. There's only one. His name is Jesus. And to be sure, this is the work of God. To be certain, this is why we use terms like 
uh, grace alone, by faith alone. What I've described to you is an impossible work that each of us desperately need God to do. And if you, if you will repent, if you have repented, if you will repent of your sins and your rebellion before God and put your faith in Jesus, the perfect substitutionary atonement for your sin, your replacement, if you trust in his death and his resurrection for you, everything changes. He, he doesn't necessarily take the symptoms of some of what you're facing away. In fact, some of those may increase. Did you know that? You come to the Lord to meet your greatest problem, and all of a sudden you have massive anxiety in your family because you're hated. Or you have things that God's working in your heart, and now your marriage seems to be worse than ever. But it's not. When you trust in Christ, everything changes. What happens is this. You are no longer just born once with a birthday. I was born August 3rd. You were no longer just born once. You were, scripture says, born again. Born again. Nicodemus was like, what are you talking about? This is real and true. You were spiritually born anew. You no longer are rejected by God, but you were adopted. You're no longer hard-hearted and indifferent to the things of God. You have a new mind and a new heart. You no longer are guilty, but you're forgiven. This is absolutely unthinkable. You're no longer condemned, but you're free. You are no longer unclean, but you're declared righteous. You're no longer dead, but alive. And faith in, in Christ absolutely changes everything. And if it is true, and it is, if faith in Christ changes everything, then it is practical for anyone. Anyone. There's no one that is not touched by faith in Christ. And so James gets real practical and brings us to our first point. Is anyone among you suffering? A practical faith praise. Look at verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? All right. Let him pray. Now, this sounds to me very similar to what we hear in the media. A tragedy happens and they say our thoughts and prayers are with them, right? This sounds even more insensitive than that. That's not even our thoughts and prayers. This is just, you're suffering? Uh, pray. You need to pray. Or as MC Hammer used to say back in the 80s, you got to pray just to make it today. All right. How helpful is this? Maybe James is looking at this like uh, a pregame warm-up. Maybe he, he's a practical guy and he's saying, okay, you need to pray because the game's about to start. You need to make sure you're stretched up and ready to go. As you get older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe that's James. Well, Oswald Chambers, first of all, I'll say there's no hope that that's what James is thinking. And we have a quote here that will be on the screen for you by Oswald Chambers, and I think it's helpful. He says this, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. There's no hope that James is talking about pregame warm-up. He's saying you want to get practical, then you need prayer. You want practical, then you pray. But here's the thing, and you know, many of us are saying, you got to pray, you got to pray. MC Hammer, you got to pray. Okay, pray to who? Or you want to get practical, then we need to make sure we're praying to the right person. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And so if you are, did you know this? If you are praying to the Father through the Son, you are praying to God Almighty. 
You are praying to the only living God. Like, let that, let that just sink and sit on you. Let, feel the weight of that. Isn't that incredible? You are praying to the only living God. In our culture that, that says opposite, you need to hear that anew. And this is extremely practical. Now, the opposite is true. If you're not praying to God the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, at best you're praying to a demon. You are not praying to God. There is only one. And your prayers are not practical. And your thoughts and prayers are not helpful. They are useless. James knows this. I think James, too, is going to say, if he's, if he's saying pray, then it's important that we ask the question, for what? To who, but then for what? I mean, everyone asks when you go through suffering that the suffering will be taken away. I would say it would be strange if you didn't ask that. And if the suffering's taken away, I mean, no one says, what? Oh, man, really? God took that away? I mean, praying for this is good and right, but is it good for everyone all the time? How practical is that all the time? And remember back, if you look back at James chapter 5, verse 11, so jump back a bit into the context. We can't forget this. James says this. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So it would seem... James says, blessed are those who remain steadfast through suffering. Why? So that they would see God. They would see the compassion and mercy of God. He's referring to Job. If you don't know Job, or if you do, I'll remind you. Job lost everything in a heartbeat. He lost his kids. He lost his home. He lost his livelihood. He literally lost everything. Except his wife, who was awful. And he says after this, he cries out to God something, one of the most famous um, proclamations in the word of God. He says this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We read that. You put yourself in Job's situation. There is no hope that you can say that unless you have a high faith, a high level of faith in God. You are not saying that otherwise. It will not cross your mind. And now, get this. What happens after Job said that? He is crushed. He loses his physical health. Right after saying this. Apparently, and, and I, James, I think this is what James is saying, is, is Job needed to see some things about God. He had a high level of faith and God loved him too much to leave it there. He was going to show him some more of who he was. And we get the privilege of looking at, at, looking at, the, at uh, the story of Job and seeing the compassion and the mercy of God. Now, I guarantee you Job came to know God in a way that many of us um, don't know God. And some of you uh, know what I'm talking about. You've gone through things and if you've looked to the Lord in those times of suffering, whatever has hit you and radically changed you, you know what I'm talking about. You have an opportunity, if you have not already, you have an opportunity to know God in a way that I won't. Okay, you go through um, things like a miscarriage, you know, or uh, anxiety that just it comes on you out of nowhere. You, you have uh, the sins of your past that are brutal. 
a lingering sickness, whatever it would be, you hear this. You have the opportunity to see God through this. And sometimes God leaves those things and has them remain in its grace. So you can pray that God takes it away, and that is godly. I would say it's even better to say, if you don't, then Lord, I need to remain steadfast. And then I would say even more, as I believe James is saying, you need to see God. God, pray as you're through the suffering. Show me who you are. I need to see you more. I need to know your character, your promises, your commands, what you've done, your faithfulness. Pray that. Pray that. And that is a very practical prayer that very few pray. But it's very, very practical. James tells us something else practical. And the second is this. He says, is anyone among you cheerful? A practical faith praises. Look at verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Okay, so this seems a little, to me, on the outset, a little impractical. Notice what he says here, and maybe this terrifies some of you. He doesn't just say, let him praise. Look what he says. But let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. So isn't this kind of like telling someone how to celebrate? when they're watching their favorite hockey team. Anyone watch the Stanley Cup Finals? You know, I watched that with my boys. Didn't want to, but I was trying to be a good father. Stayed up way too late watching these guys. And isn't it kind of like me saying, I watch my boys, you know, and they, someone scores a goal, and they're just like, yes! And I'm like, that was good, but um, why, don't you, um, why don't you sing now? Why don't you just turn that into a song? And, and then the next goal is like, how about we just all stand and just give like a, a whoop whoop right now? Like, is this what James is doing? You know, it's almost like the first time Caleb walked, right? And we're like, my oldest boy, he walked. It's unbelievable. It took him forever. He's doing it. And we're like, yeah, this is great. And then if Julie turned to me and said, that was pretty good, now sing. <laughs> right? Almost like a bad musical. You ever seen a musical before? You're like, come on, everything's a song. It's just not natural. <laughs> what is James speaking of? Well, James, I think, is addressing times that we're cheerful and we don't sing. We hold it in. Have you ever had that? Your heart's stirring and you're like, uh, but, you know, and I hate this. Knock on wood. Really? What does that mean anyhow? That's a whole other sermon, <laughs> right? But your heart's stirring and you're just like, no, I don't know because this might not work out and, you know, I don't want to count all my chickens before they hatch. But did you know that a good portion of the Christian life is counting on hatched chickens. That's like a good portion of our faith. If you're going to believe in the promises of God, many of which you haven't seen yet, you're counting chickens that are unhatched. And you're counting on them. You're fixing your eyes on things that are to come. You feel lonely, and, and, and maybe in many ways, rightly so. But by faith, you say, I'm not alone. God is with me, and you sing. You feel scared, and, and again, maybe rightly so, and, and, and you say, but he's an ever-present help in time of need. And then you sing. You have physical pain that's brutal and even causes you nausea at times. But by faith, you say, this can't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. And then you sing. You see, you're counting your chickens before they hatch. And so we do. We count our unhatched chickens and we sing. That's what we do as believers. 
And James, I think, is also addressing the type of faith that sings not just at the parties, right, but through the pain. The world gets partying, you know, and singing, you know, in the celebrations. But what about this? James, if you remember what James said in chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then if we go to the back of the book here now where we land, it's as if James is saying, now sing. Now sing. Like Job, we can sing through the suffering. Now the culture looks at that and says, Job is weird. If you're singing through your suffering, honestly, that's weird. You know, and you can be, you can figure you are the partier of partier in Brantford. And and you know partying like none other. I can promise you that you have no clue of what partying and singing is about unless you know the source of all joy. You have no clue. You do not know what it means to sing. You only, one, know what it means to sing, apparently, when you have something that you think to be cheerful about. You don't know what to sing when it's about in pain because you don't know the source of all joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Fullness. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is our God. He is the source of all joy. This um, concept blew my mind as a young Christian, reading some John Piper stuff on Desiring God. Are you kidding me? So, so God is the source of it all, and the world doesn't have a little pocket over here of music. They got that together, or they, they've got wealth together. They have nothing. He is the source of all joy. And so maybe you say then, okay, Cal, he's the source of all joy. I love my Lord, but I'm not a singer. You know, there was... Um, there's four boys. Actually, I actually knew a couple of them. My last name's Hunter. They were Hunter boys. Four of them. Not often you meet four brothers, and uh, they're known as singers. Okay, Christian boys, they, um, they go around on tour and sing. There's other uh, four boys uh, with last names Hunter. They grew up in Saskatchewan, and uh, when they go to sing, they're told to stop. <laughs> I have three brothers, and, and I'm part of the four boys. <laughs> we're not a singer, really. We're not singers. Now, there's no one of my family that's, that's singing or leading worship, so maybe you say, well, yeah, this doesn't really apply. This is a worship leader um, passage. Well, Bob Coughlin, who is a worship pastor, said this, and I think it's very helpful. He said, worshiping God, worshiping God in song isn't simply a nice idea or only for musically gifted people. The question is not, has God given me a voice, but has God given me a song? If you trust in the finished work of Christ, the answer is clear, yes. Yes, you have a song. Now, um, I just bought a boat. It's a 14-foot inflatable boat with a 25-horse, two-stroke mercury on the back of it. And I'm pretty cheerful about my boat. I'm excited to take it out. But I must never sing a song of praise about my boat. At best, I could praise God for blessing my family and I with a boat. At best, and then I better move on real quick to forgetting about my boat, which God says he will burn up one day as he renovates the world. It's gonna burst in the flames. And I better move real quick to worshiping my God and forgetting about my boat. We have a song to sing. And we're called to worship our God. It's the gospel, it's our song. 
if you were to, um, and I can't say have a cassette or a CD anymore, an album, I think is what we call them now. <laughs> Anyhow, if you were to have an album of your life, okay, and it was a worship album, what would the name of the album be? Like, like seriously, if, if you could name it, what would the name of the album be? What would the 10 songs be? What would your number one song be today? If you could, you know, not necessarily your past, I'm saying today, if you made an album of your life today, what would it be called and what songs would be included in that? And maybe if you're really wanting to be honest, ask your spouse. Ask your kids. What does daddy love? What's he sing about? Is it just about the boat? It's not wrong to be cheerful about a boat. Better bring me quick to the Lord. I think as a family, and um, I'm, I'm actually a little terrified to do this, but um, based on what I've been studying in this passage, I'm gonna. And we've done it in the past, but as a family, we've sang together. And man, that is one of the most awkward things, maybe because I didn't grow up in a musical home. Um, we have a piano in our home now. Like for, I've never seen a piano in a home. I didn't even know it was possible to get them in the home. It's hard. It's possible. <laughs> And to sing as a family um, is something that I'm convinced that I need to do. We've done it before and it was hard, but man, it was good. And we need to sing and think, you know, do you sing? Who do you sing with? Even this question, when do you sing? Think about the times that you sing. What are you singing about? What songs are you singing to? Do you sing in the car as a family, at the table, at night? See, the command that James gives us to sing is more than just um, a practical way of showing emotion. We have a song to sing. And so we sing. A third point this morning is this. James asks another question. Is anyone among you sick? A practical faith calls. Now look at verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now again, maybe you think, okay, this isn't very practical. I mean, my sickness, there's no way my sickness is big enough, first of all, to be calling the elders. Did you notice what James doesn't say about the sickness, though, in 14? What's missing there? There's like zero description about the sickness. You can't say it's not big enough. If you're convicted to ask the elders to pray, then because of your sickness, you go. And maybe you think, like, this is, um, this sounds super old school. Kind of like, this is maybe back in the day this worked for James. Um, and his people, maybe, but I don't know if it's practical for today. Well, I want to I show you that that's just not true. I want to show you four ways that calling on the elders is very practical. And the first is this, is, and to steal a, a term from the harvest kind of community, is uncommon community. Uncommon community. If you're calling the elders for prayer, there's something that's assumed here that maybe you miss. What's assumed is that you know who the elders are. What's assumed is that you're part of a local church and you've submitted yourself to the authority of spiritual leaders that will guide you. You are part of a church. You cannot just continue um, weekend attending places. You need to be a part of a church. There needs to be a place where you could call out to elders, a place where you're saying, I'm submitting under the leadership, the preaching and teaching for sure, but the counsel and direction of my leaders. And this is assumed in here. Also assumes that you're part of a community that knows you. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, confess your sins to one another. 
You can't confess, confess your sins to one another if you're isolated. You literally have to be around others to do this. And then you're going to have a really hard time confessing sins. And I wouldn't even say it's practical to confess them to strangers. I'd go up on the sidewalk and be like, hey, um, Kyle, you know, I just got to confess something to you. right No, it's not practical. It doesn't work. James is assuming a whole lot here that you're part of a church, that you're committed to, that you're submitting to, that, that you have people within there that know you that you can confess to. When people are sick, this is what typically happens. Okay, physically sick, what happens? They isolate themselves. And in many ways we say, man, thank you for not showing up today because <laughs> you're sick, right? And when people get really sick sometimes, they have to go into quarantine. They actually have to go into quarantine. Okay, well, this is what happens with people, and I see this so often. And I know we've all felt this at times and been prone to this, is when people are spiritually sick, when they're suffering in sin, when they're wandering, what happens? They isolate themselves. All of a sudden, you can't get a hold of so-and-so. I had one of my best friends, literally, phoned him up and was like, that's weird, left a message, that's weird, left another message, okay, weird, text, weird, email, weirder. Finally went to Facebook. I'm like, why? I don't even on Facebook ever. Gonzo. Still gone. People isolate themselves all the time. And here's a promise from the Word of God. If you isolate yourself, you will not be healed. You will not heal. It will not happen. Now, some of you have made steps towards a serving, towards uh, small groups, towards uh, going to counseling, men's ministry, women's ministry, all these things. I want to tell you, if, if you've done this, if you're working towards this, you are opening up a door of something that theologians would call a means of grace. You're opening up something, a great blessing and great opportunity for healing. You just have to know that. This isn't just something that, oh, we have to go through this process, and oh, we have to do this, and this is what church people do. This is how God heals his people. He does it through the church. And so some of you need to make some decisions, and some of you are scared, but I'm telling you, there's probably a spiritual component to that fear that is far deeper than you know. If you open yourself up to this, you bring in massive amounts of healing practically into your life. God works through uncommon community. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. A second, second practical piece of calling to the elders is this right concern. Right concern. Now, elders should be concerned for your physical health for sure. Uh, verse 14, we read here that there's an anointing with oil. Uh, that word that James uses for anoint is, he could have used some other words, and he uses one here that's not your typical ritualistic kind of word for anointing. He uses one here that leans way more towards almost like a medical purpose here. We're not sure, and, and Scripture doesn't give us much details into here, but it's certainly safe to assume that there was a physical component here. There's a sickness, and there seems to be, you know, a physical maybe remedy here. Look at what he says in verse 15. And, and Hear what he says here. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, maybe from sickness getting worse? And, and maybe you read this and you're like, well, doctors do this, don't they? Like, do I stop going to the doctor? And I say, absolutely not. It's practical. Go to the doctor. Keep going to the doctor. That's fine. But, but look at what's, what's being said here. There is um, safety, uh, a saving of the one who's sick, maybe from me getting worse. And then he says, and the Lord will raise him up. This raising up is maybe from like a sickbed or something. Like a physical uh, raising up. They couldn't walk and now they can walk. But now look at what the rest of verse 15 says. 
And this is clearly spiritual. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what the elders are doing is something the medical community can never do. This is far more practical. The elders are trying to discern, is there sin involved in this sickness? Now, notice what he says in verse 15. He said, if he's committed sins. If he's committed sins. So not every sickness is due to sin, okay? But you have to know that some is. Do do you believe that? Some sickness is actually due to sin. The medical doctors will... They, they, they cannot discern these things. Look at what Psalm 32, 1-6 to says, and it'll be on the screen for you. A blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Very similar language to James, right? Covered being forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here's why. And we say, man, someone that's forgiven from their sins, you are blessed beyond belief. You are blessed. But here's what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. And the time that you may be found is now. The psalmist experienced something and knew what it meant to hold in sin and literally have it eat you alive. He said, blessed when you're forgiven, blessed when you confess, because it kills you not to. You cannot hold in sin. Remember, there is only one who bore the sins on the cross, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could do that. And if you hold these things in, if you do not confess, you hold unbelief, anger and pride in these things, it will literally kill you. There's some of you that have been trying to expose the sin of others, trying with all your strength to just show how wrong they are, trying to get justice or peace or recognition. I mean, you're just spent trying to do this. You're exhausted. Many times I talk with uh, couples and they're having problems. What is the typical case? It's she's doing this, she's this, he's doing this, he's doing that. For many of you, it's just killing you. God calls you to look at yourself and to confess your sins and be healed. The psalmist talks about bones wasting away. This idea almost like like a rot. Some of you have carried the sins of the past, the guilt and the shame, and you are not confessing it. You're holding it. You're beating yourself up. I'm so awful. It's just I'm dirty. And you have that in, and it's just rotting your bones. You feel the weight of it on your shoulders and almost like you you take so much weight, what happens? Bones start snapping. And until you confess that, until you uh, receive the forgiveness from Jesus Christ, it will eat you alive. I have have seen, and this this is what we see in the Word of God, but I have then seen this illustrated. I have prayed with people. I have had several times that just floored me. I'm praying with people either for salvation, 
So a confession of sin and, man, new life, you talk about healing, or a Christian who is now living in unbelief and living in anger and living in hate, and they finally confess their their lack of forgiveness, confess their sin, and now work it through them with them and pray with them. Open my eyes, and I've had this happen before, and look at the person, and I'm telling you, it's like there's a brand new person sitting in front of me. And it happened once, I remember going, whoa, wow, oops, I said that out loud. You look different. Do you feel different? Yes. I bet you do, based on the the truth that we were just praying, but literally to see it with my eyes. What's that about? Literally, their face even is just different. In verse 16, James talks about being healed. He uses the word healed, and that word is to be made whole. This is practical. This is talking about physical, spiritual, the whole person. Calling to the elders, the third uh, point of application is, is, is proper claims. Proper claims. Verse 15 says, And the prayer of, the, uh, prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, this looks very much like a name it and claim it power verse. Let's name it cancer and claim it healed, or name it lost and claim it forgiven. But I want to ask you a question. First of all, you do not take a passage like this and then run a theology on it. We interpret scripture with scripture. God will not disagree with himself. So I want to ask you a question. Is it possible for a sick person to remain sick and be saved? Absolutely. I'll give you one example from scripture where I see this. Um, The Apostle Paul, he prayed famously that a thorn would be taken away from him. In fact, he pleaded. It was brutal. He pleaded with God. He said three separate times. And God said, no, you will not be healed. It's not due to sin. It's to keep you humble. You've seen way too much. And in a sense, I would say Paul was saved by not being healed. God told him, it's to humble you. If God wouldn't have given him that thorn, we can then assume maybe the worst, that Paul would have went into pride and fallen away and walked into death. So it's not so much a name it and claim it, it's really what James is saying is more of a discern it and repent from it. If you want a guarantee, everyone wants a guaranteed healing. I just want a guaranteed healing. You want that? It's called the gospel. That is guaranteed. No one will be put to shame. You come to Christ and confess your sins, you are healed. Jesus said, I will raise you up from the dead one day. That is a guaranteed healing. Fourth point from uh, calling to the elders of application is this, true confession. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Notice who's not in verse 16. The elders are not. He says, confess, yes, primarily to the elders in this case, but he's saying now to one another. When was the last time that you confessed your sins to another, another brother or another sister? When was the last time? Was it today? Was it yesterday? Was it a week ago? A month, a year, honestly think of it. When was the last time you confessed your sins? Can you not remember? Or maybe are you thinking of a time, and I want you to think of a time or times 
Maybe you say, yeah, I, I, I confessed. But maybe your confession was, I cried my face off. I mean, I was, they know I was brutal. Like, like brutally broken about it. They know that. But that's not confession. You know, they, they know I said, I did it again. I confessed. And that's not confession. I said, I was sorry that I upset them. Or I said, yes, I did this thing, but you. But, but, but you, look at you and look at what you've done. Look what you made me do. You make me so angry. That's not confession. That's not confession. Confession is primarily before God. Okay, confession is, is just you. We one day stand naked before God. You're not going to have someone beside you. Yeah, but you're not going to. There's no excuses. It's you before God. And true confession is saying, what I did, hear me. Friend, hear me. Brother, sister, what I did was sin. It was wrong because this is who God is. This is what he has said. This is what he's commanded. It's wrong. Forgive me. Because this is who my God is. This is what God is pointing me towards. Forgive me. That's confession. When was the last time that you confessed? When you confess, there's healing. There's absolute healing. But pride will keep us from it. James uh, tells us to call for the elders. And in this, he's showing us how to be healed for sure. Elders' job primarily is to heal the people, look after the sheep, care for them. But this is the result of what? What is the result of healing? The, the healing is the result of, and James tells us, the prayer of faith. And not necessarily the prayer of an elder. He better be praying in faith, but it's not necessarily that. It's also the prayer of a righteous person. Not necessarily the prayer of an elder. They better be a righteous person, but it's the prayer of a righteous person. The question then is, who's a righteous person, and what's this prayer of faith? And James, like he has done through the whole book, gives us an illustration. This is fantastic. For a preacher, you're like, great, I don't even have to come up with an illustration. James gave it to me. So here it is. He says, Elijah. Elijah, look at verse 17 to 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. That is incredible. All the farmers here are like, man, I wish Elijah was with me. Right? What is with, why, James, would you pick Elijah? He did that. That's not helpful. <laughs> right? He's the guy that was taken up in flaming chariots of fire. And the horses were on fire too. And he didn't die. God just scooped him up and took him to be with him. I don't know if you remember, I think I made a reference to the prophets of Baal and how they prayed to their false god. It was useless. Elijah's the one that prayed to God and fire fell down from heaven. James, why would you give us Elijah? I mean, we'd say, Elijah's this great man. He is obviously a high level, anointed by God. Why are you illustrating this to somehow encourage me? You think, that's John Piper. Like present day, who's, who's alive? Well, that's the pastor. Almost not. What James is clearly saying, he's taking someone that they highly regarded, your Elijah, and he's saying he's, he's a righteous person. That can be any one of you. He's a righteous person. And what in the world is a righteous person? What have we looked at this morning? A righteous person is one that has faith in God, that confesses their sin before God, and then receives that forgiveness. That is a righteous person who fears their God. He was that. 
Yes, he's, he's like us. And he says he's a normal guy. He said, James said, he has a nature like ours. He's a dude. He's just a dude. Dudette for you ladies. He's just a person. He's a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently. Did you notice that too? He's showing us that Elijah didn't get his prayers answered because he was, I don't know, some angel. He had a nature like ours, and he was a righteous man who prayed in faith, and he prayed fervently. And this prayer then, for each one of us, James is saying, so that is what does it. This can be you. You have an opportunity to see people physically healed or spiritually healed or both. You have the opportunity to literally see people healed from cancer, potentially. Headaches vanish. The lame walking, the blind see, the deaf hear. You have a chance to see that, or even better, a chance to see true repentance and forgiveness. A chance to see the depressed, no joy, the anxious and fearful, who it cripples their life. You have a chance to see them healed and free and at peace. And the unsatisfied, who are just so thirsty and longing to see them taste, as Pastor Chris shared last weekend, right, from the fountain of life and be satisfied. You and I, this isn't just a work for the elders, you and I have the opportunity to see this. It's incredible. And to be sure again, and this is what we call at Harvest, God at work. This is, this is God at work. I could not help but think as I was prepping for this of Matthew 9, 5, where Jesus um, says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and, they f- and the people freak out, the Pharisees freak out. And then Jesus says this. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? What Jesus was saying here, and then he said rise and walk to the guy. And what Jesus' point was, this is an impossible work of God. Because this is an impossible work of God, and James is telling us this can practically happen in our lives. Incredible. Last and final point of practical faith is this. Is anyone among you wandering a practical faith knows? So looking at verses 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now he's describing someone who's wandered from the truth. It's the same word that he uses in James uh, chapter 1, verse 16. The wandering is this idea of deception, of erring, of being, if this is the truth, you're being lured away and enticed this way. It's someone who's going away from the truth. And he says, if you bring someone like that back, here's what's happening. You're saving their soul and you're covering their sins. You're, you're seeing their sins forgiven. Now, I look at this and say, yeah, but that's not very practical, <laughs> Because how did this happen? I, I, okay, I know that, but I want, to know, I want to know how. But here's the thing. James has already told us plainly how. How is that going to happen? That's a miracle. A wanderer comes back to the truth. How in the world did that just take place? Prayer. You can bet that it, it happened with prayer. Primarily through prayer. And now James says, if you... Um, bring someone back, you cover a multitude of sins. You know what James is doing here is he's taken Proverbs 10.12, and this is what Proverbs 10.12 says. He's taken it, and, and this is what it says. Hatred stirs up strife, 
but love covers all offenses. Now he's taken that truth, and like James has done through the whole book, he's like, now let's apply it. He's saying, if you love your brother and sister then, if, if, if this is true that it covers offenses, then, then you need to take action. The most loving thing you can do is to go after the wanderer. The most loving thing you can do is to warn them of the error and the lie and the deceit that's coming down the pipe for them that they're a part of, that's leading, if it's not leading to God, you know where it's leading, right? It's leading to death. It will not lead to their good. And you call them to the truth and you call them to repentance and faith. It's the most loving thing you can do. And now if you bring a wanderer back, I want to warn you in this. Don't just bring them back to church. I've even told people, stop inviting people to church. Why? You're not bringing them back to church. We meet in a gym. I love this as an illustration. You're not just bringing them, like, what do you, if you're going to bring them to church, if you say, you better come, you know, Sunday morning, 11.15, then the next thing you better say is, because I want you to see Jesus. I'm bringing you to that. And if it's a wanderer, you're not just getting them to church. You're not just cleaning up their life. You're not just trying to get them back to not swearing anymore and not drinking anymore. And you're getting them back to the truth. I want you to see, I want my friend to see the cross. I want him to see Christ and the cross again. I don't need him just to get to church. That's what we're doing. We're bringing them back to the truth. Now, if you've done that too, there's something that's assumed. You've gone out after them. You're not content just with your Christian life and you've gone out after them. But here's the thing. Many of us are thinking, and, you know, and it's true. There are those like my friend, my good friend that's rebelling. But this is the call for every one of us. We're all wanderers. I love that song, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I love that. One of my favorite songs. Why? Because this is my call every day to myself. Preach the gospel to myself. I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It's not just the rebel, it's all of us. And every day, and so we say things like, I can't get sick or I'm going to lose everything and we are consumed with not getting sick and being healthy. But we've forgotten who God is. We've forgotten that God is a sovereign God and we're wandering from the truth and we're living in unbelief and it, it, it literally makes us sick. Or we say, I could love my wife but she respected me. And we forget what God has commanded. He has said, love your wife like Christ loves the church. If you know the gospel, Christ died for us while we were his enemies. Is your wife your enemy? Love her. Like Christ loved the church. We say things like, if I lose this relationship, I've lost everything. If, if I lose the kids, if I lose this, I have nothing. We're consumed with this. We've wandered from the truth, and it's wrecking our life, and we've, we've forgotten of who God is and, and the fact that he says, that he's promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. We say things like, I can't forgive. I can't forgive what they've done. It is brutal what they've done. And we forget what Christ has done. We forget that he became a man, that he died for your sins, that he bore your wrath, though he was spotless and perfect. You did not earn that. You did not deserve that. By grace, he did it. And then we can forgive. Forgive. 
the most growth I've seen in my own life, and this will be the case too, and James knows, man, this is practical. This is bringing the wanderer back. This is doing this too, though. When you bring a wanderer back, when you see, not just the rebel, but you see this in the lives, as we see this in our lives together as brothers and sisters, and we say, no, man, you're forgetting this. No, no, God has done this. No, he's commanded this. And we bring them back. You're, you're bringing them back to the truth of the gospel and the cross. And when you do that, you're doing that to yourself. Some of you have experienced this. The greatest growth in your life has been when you've cared for people like this and walked with people through this. And man, you, you know, you know this with witnessing. You witness, you're like, man, I got some things I got to figure out. You talk to someone who's lost someone, a kid, it's going to drive you to the cross. And you need to figure out, what has God promised? Who is God? You have to. And then you grow. Faith changes absolutely everything. If you remember, James, and in closing to share this, we know through scripture that James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother, and his family, the family of Jesus, hated Jesus. They were cynical of him. They didn't believe in him. And then James, do you remember what James calls himself at the beginning of this book? You don't remember? Servant, yeah, slave. You look at that word, that's a slave. He says he's a slave to Christ. It was from a cynic to a slave, and then history tells us that he was martyred for his faith in Christ. He writes the book of James. Faith changed everything for him, and I guarantee it wasn't shampoo that he was using. I can promise you that. Only a faith in Christ changes everything, moving us from the impractical to the practical. So I want to close with um, an overview kind of of the book of James to show you what James has been showing us the whole time. Which, which is the fact that this is the God that changes everything. Now, um, don't, don't bother writing it down. You're not going to be able to get it on video later. Like, I want you to listen to it. I have all the references there. I want you to listen to it and just let that soak in right now. If you're like my kids, they're like, have to write everything. Just maybe put the pen down right now. I want you to look at this and to see that this is a faith that changes everything. Praise God. Faith in Christ takes us from the impractical to the practical. So James 1, verse 7, it's the difference between lacking or lacking nothing. Being double-minded and unstable to being steady. Realities, and I'm going to just say this as I go through this list, this is true for those that aren't saved yet, yes, but this is also true for us that are saved and are wandering from the truth. A faith comes back to this and changes everything. It's the difference between ending in death or ending in a crown of life. Being deceived or enlightened. Sin-filled or righteous. Guilty or free. Judging without mercy or judging mercifully. Being dead or alive. Useless or active, complete, and blessed. Cannot save to saves. Stumbling to stable. Stained. And some of us know what this feels like. Two, pure, undefiled, and unstained. Earthly wisdom to wisdom from above. Harvesting evil and disorder to harvesting righteousness and peace. Quarreling, fighting, and murdering or peace. A slave to self or a slave of Christ. Fighting God 
or submitting to God, being opposed by God or exalted by God, unsatisfied to satisfied, judges destructively or trust God's judgments entirely, doing your own will or doing the will of God, nearsighted or eternal-minded, treasuring earthly things that are rotting, yet you're stockpiling them, or treasuring Christ who is coming, so you're waiting for him. Suffering and seeing no purpose, or suffering and seeing the compassion and mercy of God. And now we read that list and we say, but this situation is too hard, and too big, and too painful, and too ugly, it's gone on too long, I'm too old, I can't change, or God can't enter here, or work here, or heal here, or he's too distant, and we say no hope of it. There's no way that that's true. Those are all lies, because faith in Christ literally changes everything. And a faith in Christ, then, is practical for everyone, anyone. 